Hello, you lovely people. Now, today's guest is Maddie Henner. She made the gigantic leap from taxi driver to a murder detective after years of never knowing quite what she wanted to do. Maddie, who in her own words was a rebel at school, didn't join the police until she was 39 and had two children. She has since worked on some of the most high-profile crimes in our country. This includes the Salisbury poisoning case. She was part of the investigation to catch the serial killer Christopher Hallowell. You may have seen this case dramatised in the programme A Confession, starring Martin Freeman. And she's one of just three detectives to bring Emil Silliers to justice. He sabotaged his wife's parachute when she jumped from a plane. Maddie's conversation makes you realise you don't have to know from an early age what you want to do and it's never too late to try. Maddie has seen size of life most of us will never see, so she knows just how important it is to live the life you wish. Hello and welcome to the next chapter by Ellie Barker. As I start my next chapter as an author, I speak to incredible people who have already started theirs, in the hope it might help you think about your next chapter, or well, you just might enjoy the conversation. Anyway, here she is. Maddie Henner. So Maddie Henner, thank you so much for joining me on the next chapter with Ellie Barker. You're my very first guest and I feel honoured to have you. So thank you. It's very exciting to be here and I'm very excited to be your first guest, that's for sure. So okay, Maddie, we're going to start off. I'm going to call it the prologue. So this is where Maddie Henner began, where life began for you. My upbringing was very transient. Um, So I was born at home in Clifton in Bristol. Um, I was the fourth of four. Um, and I was the first one my father actually saw being born um, because, of course, in those days, the men didn't go into the delivery room, but because I was born at home, he saw me being born, and apparently at the end of it, he turned around to my mother and said, oh, that was a bit of hard work, wasn't it? (laughs) Um, So I was, yeah, so born in Bristol, fourth of four. Um, I lived there until um, I was four, so I have really very, very scant memories about um, living there, and then we moved to Southport, um, it was it was with my father's work, so he tended to be um, his main jobs were managing directors of paper paper companies, um, which sounds quite odd, but um, it was firms that um, created um, the time I remember was that you know the waxed paper they used to use on milk cartons and things. Yeah, um, that was a big sort of innovation that he was a part of. Um, so we moved to Southport, um, and then at the age of eight. Um, we moved from Southport to just outside Liverpool, a place called um, Blundell Sands in Crosby. Okay. Um, and I lived there until I was 13. And then at the age of 13, my parents uh, bought a hotel up in Scotland. So I moved up to Scotland, a little village called Bigger, just south of Edinburgh. Um, and where I lived until I was uh, 20. Four? You say you're the fourth of four. Yeah, and you told me in your notes that you kindly sent me, you said they were, they've all been extremely successful. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> um, they, um, they're all very bright um, and uh, we were very lucky. I had a very good education. Um, I went to all girls schools, uh, public schools. Um, they um, were all very studious, all very good and, you know, knuckled down and, and you know, went to university and, and um, in their chosen careers. Um, I, however, um, and it's partly, I, I, I do believe, you know, your childhood has such a massive effect on the rest of your life. And of course, at the age of 13, which is a really crucial age for a child, um, we moved up to Scotland, which meant um, I was going to my, I think it was about my third school, um, but at the age of 13. So it was a big change. Um, I was English. Um, I was, uh, you know, it took me a while to sort of fit into Scotland for a start um, and of course you know I was going through puberty and everything was very confusing and and my parents were very much tied up in the hotel and you know through no fault of their own they were really busy so I did the old thing of rebelling and by the age of 14 I was just being the most revolting rebellious child imaginable and that included not working at school and you know just being a complete pain um, which meant that my education sort of took a bit of a nosedive at that point. I'm sure you weren't um, a unfortunately. complete pain, Maddie. I'm sure you weren't. So did you have any then, did you have any idea what you wanted to do? No, no, I, I never, I never had really a focus in life. Um, I toyed with the idea of um, firstly being a vet, um, because I've always been 
completely animal mad. I was very lucky. I was brought up with lots of animals. Um, so I was uh, um, toyed with the idea of being a vet. And then it occurred to me that actually I might have to put animals to sleep. And I thought, no, I, I can't do that. So I went off that idea. And I actually thought about being a journalist. Um, and then I realised how much work it was to be a journalist. Uh, I'm sure as much <laughs> I went the, off that idea yeah. as well. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm not sure it compares with being a murder detective, but we'll get on to that later. You said you also, you liked acting. Yes, yes, I did. Um, I, I I think it's probably, it's one of those things that when you act, you can be somebody else. Um, and I think, I think to, to be honest, I probably felt a little bit lost in life um, from the age of, well, for, probably from quite young, being fourth of four, you kind of get forgotten a little bit because, you know, having, I mean, we're all, my mother had four children under six. Um, so it must have been quite hard work for her. Um, so being the fourth of four, I think you pretty much get left to get on with it. Yeah. <laughs> and I think, I think I probably felt a little bit lost. And I think um, the thought of acting is quite appealing that you can go off and be somebody else. You did go to a comprehensive school for a year in Scotland. <laughs> I did. What was that, so like that compared was, with the with the the other years? So I'd done my O grades and um, just sort of for a change of scenery, I said, "How about I go to the local comprehensive for a year?" And this is a local comprehensive in the local village. Um, and my first thought was, "Oh my gosh, there's boys in the same corridor as me," um, which I'd never had before. Um, I can remember my first day in the classroom. Um, the boys, you had a boys table and a separate girls table. So they sat separately in, in registration in your own classroom. And I can remember the teacher taking registration, Mr. McGilvery, his name was. <laughs> and um, he said at the end of it, he said, um, right, Madeline, I want you to stay behind at the end. And of course, all the boys started cheering, Way! you know, <laughs> innuendo type stuff. And I was just mortified. I didn't know what to do with myself. Um, so anyway, I stayed behind and he said to me about choosing my options and what I was going to do for my hires. And um, and then he he sort of started saying to me, you, you know, um, once you've made your options, you're going to have to stick with them. And he swore while he was talking to me. And I can remember thinking, oh, my gosh, adult swear. You know? And a teacher. <laughs> and teachers swear. You know, <laughs> this was just a million miles away from anything I had ever known up until that point. So it was um, it was an interesting year. And I think it opened my eyes a lot, you know had to sort of prove I could be as bad as the as the rest of them if that makes sense yeah it does make sense um so so then so when you left school you didn't go to university did you take a did you take your hires you didn't do anything um (laughs) (laughs) Maddie you were a rebel (laughs) yeah I was I really I mean I really 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 was a rebel um I was the first of the four siblings to fail one of the the major exams you know so I did O grades um, and I think I failed three of them. Um, I then did do a couple of hires. Um, I did, um, <laughs> I did, so I'd done art O-level. Um, I did, um, one of the O-level O-grades I did was an art O-grade. Um, so I thought I'll do art at higher, but I didn't realise that it was going to include the history of art, which meant I'd have to study. Okay. <laughs> so, um, so anyway, when it came to the actual exam, you, you do the practical and then you do the um, academic side of it as well, your history of art. So the, the practical was fine. I sailed through that because I'm, I'm quite arty. And when it came to the um, history of art, I can remember going into the, the exam room and sitting down and opening up the paper. And, and the first question or one of the questions was compare Constable and Turner. So I sat there and I wrote a few bits comparing Constable and Turner. And I read the rest of the questions and I thought, I, I don't. I don't know any of the answers. So after about 20 minutes, I left the exam room. Right. And when I got outside, I realised that I'd got Constable and Turner the wrong way around. Oh, Maddie. At least you tried, Maddie. At least you tried. But um... (laughs) I turned up for the exams. Yeah, yeah, come on. We've got to focus on the positive here. You then went to do some different jobs. You were a taxi driver. Yeah, so it was was really a case of... um, finding jobs that I could earn some money so we could go to the pub and party sort of thing. Living in a, you know, living in a small village, there are not a lot of options for jobs. You know, um, Bigger was 25 miles away from Edinburgh. So there were no big cities nearby or anything. Waitressing, there was always, there's always going to be waitressing, isn't there, somewhere. So waitressing, um, working in a bar, 
um, in one of the pubs. Um, I did that a lot. Um, there was a um, a factory that made um, tartan, um, sort of Scottish material, if you like. Um, they're incredibly successful. I'm still in touch with them. Um, some of the lads that, whose family owned that, um, and they're incredibly successful now. Um, but I used to cut scarves, and I can't tell you how dull this job was, and get paid one pound seventeen an hour. Oh, okay. okay. It was just it was mind numbing, but it was money to spend at the pub, you know. Yeah. Um, and then one of the other ones was taxi driving. I, I drove um, um, the, for one of the local taxi firms. I used to drive um, the taxis, um, and I had Majeur in the back of my taxi no once because Midler lived he lived near nearby and I can remember picking him up and taking him off somewhere else okay. um and did you chat so to yes him? did you talk did you talk to him yeah I seem to think I did I probably I probably did a bit like I'm doing now I just talk the hind legs off a donkey and I don't <laughs> ever really give anybody much of a chance to say anything so. <laughs> <laughs> that's good I think I probably did just talk at them a lot um and um just and a lot of a lot of that. So if you imagine when I, I didn't, I only ever really drove during the day because it was never safe to drive at night uh, as a woman on my own. So I used to do much of the daytime taxiing. Um, but a lot of that is um, protection, I think. You know, as a woman in in potentially vulnerable situations, you learn to talk and you learn to evaluate people quite quickly. Um, but if you keep and, and the logic, I suppose, is if you keep somebody talking. It's going to be more difficult for them to do anything to you yeah. or hurt you in any way, if that makes sense. Yeah. So, you know, I, I would talk a lot to people. So, OK, so this is actually then bringing us on now to the next chapter. I was married at 26 and had my daughter at 27. Um, and it was a, um, a the story of my life, a bit of a dysfunctional marriage <laughs> that, that ended quite quickly. Um, and I was then a single parent. Um, and back in those days, it was very, very difficult to um, afford to work if you, you know, didn't have something that paid you a lot of money. So um, I um, was a stay at home mum. And so to try and find things to do, because I, I didn't enjoy just doing nothing. So I did a lot of um, charity work. Um, I used to do um, I used to um do what they call a blood run where I'd take um, blood from the hospital to the hospice and, and vice versa I did reading onto tapes for the blind um, and also then I thought well what else can I do that can take up some time I'll join the specials um, because obviously that's a, it's a voluntary job um, but I thought that would be quite good fun so I joined the specials which is you know part of the reason I joined really well, was it a specific no, was it, I don't think it was a specific interest in the police at that time I just thought it would be something to to use up a bit of time to be honest did you find that that was helpful doing all those different roles and learning what you liked and didn't like I there was no way I was looking to find some focus because I was because I was a single mum and and life was tough uh you know it was financially it was a struggle um and mentally it was a struggle so um no I was not looking for any particular focus at that time no you married again at 31 yes so 31 I married again yes uh, right. to a gentleman who was in the RAF so then this took you away again so you ended up going off to Cyprus where we lived for three years um which was without comparison the best three years of my life oh, wow, amazing <laughs> you love the, the people the weather everything uh, I, I'm a real weather um bod you know I just I just love the sunshine and the warm weather and um it was just it was just fabulous it was just everything um it was it was almost like a gated community because at Criteria you live behind the wire um and you all have lovely houses and um the children have a fantastic time at school um and you have you know there were five beaches on behind the wire and you had theatres you had gymnasiums you had just everything was just there and it was just heaven it was just it just heavenly um and I worked at the um Akrotiri airport which is obviously the RAF base um as a ground hostess which I absolutely loved which was great fun as well what did so, you love um, about it it's dealing with people much as um I prefer animals <laughs> I actually I actually really enjoy interacting with with people so I think it I think it was that I think it was the variety and the um helping 
helping people because it, a, a lot of our work, although you've got obviously the troops um, from all the services coming in and out all the time, you have lots of family because the families of, of those troops are, and, and service people are there as well. So you're dealing with the families and helping with the children and the, you know, nervous flyers and things like this. So it was it was just great fun, really good fun, a really good job. Okay, so presumably then did you come back because that your time out there ended, is that so you then had to come back and you went back, yes. you came back to Lynham? Yes, that's right, came back to Lynham. And, but you had your son out in Cyprus? I did, so I was actually pregnant when I went out in okay. 99. Um, that was interesting, I, I moved out there in the August, it gets up to sort of 45 plus degrees Ugh. and it's, it's humid, almost 100% humidity and I was pregnant. Oh my gosh, it was just, it was that pretty was a idiot. challenge. So the next chapter, so if this wasn't enough, Maddie, if this wasn't enough, <laughs> in, uh, in, in 2003, you joined the police. Now, you said you joined the police mainly because you liked the idea of having a job with a solid pension. Is that, that's the truth. <laughs> that's the truth. That's, it's that's absolutely true. So when I came back from Cyprus, I was, 38 uh, you know you start to think a bit about the future and I thought you know what I have no security for the future um, a lot of people are very sensible and they've got pensions on the go from quite a young age but I was never sensible as you've probably gathered by now so I thought <laughs> I really ought to get a job that's going to give me some sort of security and pension when I'm older um, and I very medically minded um I've always been interested in medical things and um, within the police, um, after I joined the police, you know, I was a coroner's officer and things like that. So I'd, I'd always had this sort of medical interest. My mother was a physio. So, you know, that's always been there. And um, so I wanted to join the ambulance service. Um, so w when I came back initially, I had to get a job. Um, so I went to work for the Strategic Health Authority. And that was a sort of while I look for something with a pension. So I wanted to join the ambulance service and they clearly, after about eight or nine months, they weren't recruiting. All their recruitment was done internally. So um, I thought, well, okay, this, I saw an, an advert for Wiltshire Police recruiting and I thought I was a special constable. I could probably do that. Um, so I thought I'll apply. I'm probably a bit too old. They're not going to want me, but I'll give it a go anyway while I'm waiting for the ambulance service to to recruit, if you like. Um, and the rest is history. I applied, um, got through the application, um, went through all the, I mean, it, it's really stringent or, you know, that what you have to go through to actually become a constable, certainly back then, and went through all the, you have to go there for a day and do various tests that they put you through. And my very, I think my very first test was um, you go and do lots of written tests in maths and English and, um, you know, your, your knowledge of spelling and grammar and that sort of thing. Um, when they phoned me up to give me the results of that test, um, she said to me, how do you think you did? And I said, yeah, I think I did okay, actually. And she said, yes, you got 252 out of 255. <gasps> and she said, what do you think of that? And I said, well, what did I get wrong? And I was quite, you know, I thought, three, three, three things wrong. What, what did I get you? wrong? I think it must have been the maths because I was never very good at maths. So I think it was probably the maths. Uh, so, I mean, and also, let me just go back. So you got three questions wrong. That's very different to your arts uh, exam experience there <laughs> I can see there'd been some progression <laughs> going on yeah, yeah they, they didn't ask me anything to do with history of art no, that's probably what just it was. as well probably just as well <laughs> remember the very last um sort of hurdle was um you had to be interviewed and one of my interviewees was the ex-chief constable um Elizabeth Neville I think that's her name Elizabeth Neville um and she was actually one of my interviewees. Well, I had no idea who she was. Um, so I wasn't nervous, you know, it was, it was, which is quite nice, I suppose. Um, and I can remember her saying to me, you know, you're, you're quite well spoken. She said, how do you think you're going to interact with, you know, the different people that you meet? Um, and the, the lovely thing about before you join the police or for people who never join the police is you've got this wonderful rose tinted glasses view of the world. And, you know, so I sort of thought, well, it's no problem. Why should the way I talk be any problem, you know? Um, and it's, you know, after you join the police, you you come to realise that people that you deal with in certain situations perceive you and treat you differently, potentially because of the way you talk. 
Um, so that was that was a, a, an interesting question, I thought, when I was asked it. But um, I understand better now why I was asked that question, um, but not something I could have answered at the time. No. Um, so, yeah, having got through um, and surprisingly, uh, they came back and offered me offered me a place which was fabulous at the age of 39 so you had two yeah. ch- two children were you yes. working part-time as such or was it full-time at that straight in at full-time no no you go in full-time it's right, um okay. it's, I, I don't think you could I don't think do there that. was an option to go part-time no. I, you know it was it was full-time um okay. I was I was really lucky so my my daughter by that point was 12 and she was at um so my my children both went to public school but they boarded they both boarded okay. actually um, so she was at boarding school. So she was being looked after at boarding school. Um, and my son was four, I think, when I joined. Um, three, 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 four. When I nearly four when I joined. Um, and my husband at the time um, managed to fi- um, fiddle his hours at work, not fiddle his hours, but change his hours at work so that he was able to look after my son while I was at training college because you do 15 weeks at training college. Um, as well as a couple of weeks either side where you're residential. So um, he was able to alter his hours so that he could look after um, our son while I, while I was away training. So that was really good. And what was that? Um, I mean, what was that time like then, Maddie? So that was that, that was such a huge change, wasn't it? And you're a woman, which and you were an, you were an older woman at the time compared with all the people yeah. that you were with. I mean, what was that time like for you? <laughs> Do you know, it was a bit like um, it was a bit like the university I never had. It's quite similar in many respects. You know, you're residential, you're all living together. So there was some there was some quite hard partying, <laughs> just, um, you know, in between. <laughs> it was really good fun. And it was quite difficult for me because at the age of 39, I was going back to learning. And um, the first five weeks you're there, you have to learn the law. Um, because obviously that is the staple to being a police officer. You need to know the law and you need to know it inside out. So those first five weeks were really intense. Uh, We had lots of exams along the way, which you had to pass. So it was really intense, but it was it was fabulous. I I just I loved going back and using my brain. I loved the challenges um, and I loved this whole new learning that I was doing both um, mental and physical. Uh, the, certainly, when I joined, it was a, it was very much still a male um, orientated uh, environment. Um, after I'd finished training, and as I went, uh, you know, onto the job, uh, onto the job, and you do on the job training, that in itself brought a whole new set of challenges. Um, but those first, you know, four months of training were um, were good. It was good to get back, use my brain and do something completely different. Did you start to think, hang on, this is this is my world. This is this is kind of I this is where I belong. Yeah, do you know, I think you do. It's it it's it's a re- it's a really funny thing when I think back to those um days at training college. I went to a a, a really great place called Morton and Marsh um and they have the fire service training college. So it it and they used to have the police there as well. And we lived in the most basic um, blocks you can imagine. Within within that those first fifteen weeks, you you very much are part of a group. Um, but yes, you you very much you're given that uniform, and you start to take on this identity of a police officer, um, and you begin you begin to think actually I'm a part of something here. Um, you don't fully understand it. I'll, be honest until you start going out on the streets and dealing with good old joe public you are part of something mm. um and you as a person so your own identity you are part of that big group of something mm. so yes definitely yeah that must have been amazing for you especially after all what you had been through all the different changes you'd been through that must have been incredible and can i just point out you won your race you were the fastest running in the Morton on the Marsh competition. At the end of the 15 weeks, they did a three-mile run and everybody had to do this three-mile run. So within our 100 people, we had to do this three-mile run and we all just went off together. Um, And I was, so I was the second fastest um, female, um, bearing in mind that I was the oldest by eight years. So the next youngest female to me was eight years younger than me. And I I think I was about the sixth person to come in out of 100. So um, it was like, 
yeah, it was like, Yabu sucks to you. You know, I may be old, but I can, I can do it. I can run, you know. <laughs> That's brilliant. So then, Maddie, so then you go on um, huge cases, really, really big cases. So you had Emil Cilia's case. Now that is, he was found guilty of two counts of attempted murder of his wife when he tampered with her parachute. You also worked on Novichok, uh, which were the, yeah. the Salisbury poisonings. And you also worked on the Christopher Hallowell case. So th they're just three. So you then have gone on to work on these incredible, incredible cases. So how, you know, how did that all go about from you joining that day and then you're working and you're you're dealing with people who have attempted murder, who have murdered? Yeah. So everybody, when they join the police, they, they have two-year probation in uniform and you have to be out doing the what what people think of as your classic bobby on the street um so i spent two years in uniform um in swindon um passing my probation so once i'd passed my probation um i quite quickly um took up acting sergeant roles um and part of that actually was because i think of um, my maturity um, because I was older than a lot of people I'd experienced life not quite like being in the police but I'd experienced life um, a bit more than some people so um, I had that maturity to sort of manage people if you like so I did that for a long time and I was in uniform for the first five and a half years of my career um, and loved it I personally think the toughest job that the police do is being out in the streets um, dealing with every day um, with something different and you never know what you're going to learning how to deal with um, people their attitudes gave me a good a good grounding um, and you know being out uh, on response and you know walking about on the beat and dealing with all these different things um, in uniform you have to you have to have a very thick skin and you have to um, be able to, like I was saying, you know, talk your way out of situations. Mm. And, you know, certainly my ability to talk the hind legs of a donkey, I think, certainly <laughs> helped in a lot of those situations. Is that what you would do if you came up against somebody, you know, who who was drunk or was sort of in a in a bad way and quite aggressive? Is that what you would do? You sort of just keep talking to them? You know, how do you keep calm? Yeah, no, absolutely. I think um, it, it's really interesting. And, and, I mean, th these are my personal views, but I, th I find it really useful that we have such a diversity of people within the police um, because you will find that, you know, when if you're dealing with um, aggressive people or drunk people, there are, you will come across different um, behaviours. And sometimes those behaviours, um, you can talk to them and you can talk them down from any, uh, you know, hyper... Um, situation that they are in it's not always possible to do that and sometimes you have to then change your tack staying calm you don't always stay calm sometimes a, a situation is really scary you know you deal with a lot of really scary things or did I don't so much now but certainly back then um, but you just learn to deal with it um, it's policing and that's what you learn to to deal with mm. and did you by this stage so your children obviously were growing up so you, but and obviously your daughter was still at boarding school. How did you find that to be dealing with that, but then having a family life as well? My second husband and I um, separated um, in two thousand and four, so not long after I joined the police. Okay. Um, we then shared um, looking after our son. Obviously, my daughter was at um, boarding school by that point, so we shared looking after my son with to be honest him being the primary carer because my hours were so chaotic when you're in the police you you work very odd hours um so he was really primary carer for our son who then was having heard from his sister how wonderful boarding school was was adamant he was going to boarding school so he went off to boarding school at nine um he wanted to he asked to so yeah. he went off to boarding school at nine um and in many ways, that takes away that pressure um, of having young children, which I was very lucky um, because, you know, a lot of police officers have to juggle um, children at home um, at the same time. And, and I don't envy them that because, you know, it's tiring. Working in the police is tiring because of the shift 
work that you do. Um, um, and it meant that for me, life was probably easier in many ways. Um, what I what I didn't realise at the time and, and, you know, found out later was how much my daughter worried about me. Mm. Um, when I, you know, I tell us the odd story about what I've been up to at work. And um, I found out later that she spent her time worrying every time I went out to work mm. that I wasn't going to come back. And of course, when they see things in the news with police being, you know, killed and things at work, she, she worried about me a lot, bless her. Mm. You can understand that. Also, though, I can also imagine that she's extremely proud. So, you know, it's sort of the two sides yeah. of it all, isn't it? All, all the time as there always is. So how did that, how did you then progress into doing such big murder inquiries? So um, from uniform, um, I was about to get um, um, promoted to temporary sergeant. I'd passed all my exams and I was about to be promoted to temporary sergeant. And I decided um, that it would be too, my path, my career path may be too narrow if I remained um, in uniform. So I would take my detective exam so that I could join CID and just broaden my horizons of where I could go within a career. Um, so I took my CID exams and joined CID. 2009, I think I joined CID, where I you, you have to do a certain, you have, you, have, you have to complete a portfolio when you're on CID before you get signed off as a detective. So I did my portfolio, got signed off as a detective. Um, and then I worked in areas like um, the burglary and robbery squad. Um, I worked on that for a while um, and I sort of interspersed the two CID and, and burglary and robbery squad. Um, and at this time I was still living in Swindon. I then ended up in a relationship where the chap was working down the south of the county. So I thought, well, I might as well um, transfer from Swindon down to Salisbury. Um, and I did that within the burglary and robbery squad. I transferred down to um, Salisbury, um, where I again worked on the burglary and robbery squad. Um, that relationship was not a very nice relationship. And um, due to some issues um, or some, quite a lot of issues within it, it meant that mentally I was not able to continue with my promotion throughout um you know within the police I was about you know I was on the cusp of promotion to sergeant and then would have gone up through the ranks um but that kind of put paid to that so I remained um down in Salisbury working um on the burglary robbery squad and then went on to CID um down in Salisbury um throughout my um time from from right from when I was in uniform I was a I trained as a family liaison officer um, which was where I ended up working on the um, Halliwell case and working with Sean O'Callaghan's mother. And that was while I was still in Swindon. Um, that was a long investigation, which was over a couple of years. Um, but my role within that investigation was as family liaison officer, um, which um, you are actually an investigator. So you're, you're um, helping to find out why this person died, really. Um, and that was a, a fascinating, fascinating um, job that I had within that. How do you sort of cope with working in such such intense situations? That's a really interesting question. Um, mental health is a massive um, part of your life and, and certainly dictates how you deal with everything in your life. Um, and when your mental health is, is unstable, then life becomes really difficult. And I'll be honest, life was really difficult. Um, and partly because I was trying to um, do my job without um, my home life affecting the way I dealt with things um, and without including people from my work in my home life. So I wasn't telling anybody about my home life or what was going on or how bad it was. Um, so it was really difficult. Um, there were times throughout my career when I didn't cope very well. Um, and um, I went on to sort of restrict what they call restricted hours, which is where you're just giving yourself a bit of a breather and you're giving yourself a chance to mentally get back to a place where you can go back up to full time hours and, you know, do your job again. Um, 
but I um, I come from a very strong family and um, I come from a family where you have a stiff upper lip and you get on with things and you, um, you know, life is life and you carry on regardless. So I carried on um, and I was lucky and I was lucky in many respects. Um, and I think I was probably quite lucky that um, the um, Cilia's case came along when it did. I'd been working on CID, um, which is how I picked up the case. Um, but it meant then that I went on to a small team. And I think being on a small team helped my mental health and being able to focus on a job as big as that, where I had to um, I had to use my mind trying to think of how to describe it. So you have to focus, you have to be focused. Um, and it gives you a strength in that focus to do the job you have to do. Um, so I very much was able to separate at that point my home life and my work life, um, which I did. Mm. Um, so it, it it almost came at a, at a really good time to help me cope with both my mental health and my work life. Because I, I should just point out, just case if someone's listening, they don't know the full the full story. You did that really. It was your own drive that because you wanted to see justice done you know you're doing that on top of your day job you're doing it around your hours you know you were really sort of fighting and I've seen it you know I watched last night the documentary with you um and Fiona Bruce and the footage and you were sitting opposite him and you I mean what's that like Maddie I mean I know it sounds a silly ridiculous question but to sit opposite somebody that you really believe had every chance of attempting to murder their wife and you have to sit opposite him how do you deal with that that's another really good question. So how do you deal with it? I think um, I was was quite lucky in that I arrested him. And I know that sounds like a strange thing to say, but it meant that I got that initial um, interaction with him um, to try and understand who and what I was dealing with. So right from his very first reaction to being arrested, which was nothing, I have to say, which when you're arrested for attempted murder is an odd reaction. So that very much gave me a measure of the person I was dealing with. Um, my colleague and I then spent six hours on that very first evening interviewing him. And I quite quickly gained a measure of who and what he was and how he thought and how he thought he was going to get one over on us. Um, so, so for me, I was quite lucky that I had that initial interaction because from that point on, I knew who I was dealing with. Um, and I very quickly worked out from my subsequent dealings, A, that he didn't like me very much for obvious reasons, um, but he really didn't like me. I was a strong woman. I was strong, I was a woman. Um, and I had arrested him and I was getting the better of him, if you like, because I was finding out when he was lying. I was challenging him with those lies. He didn't like me being a woman. He didn't like me being strong and he didn't like me challenging what he was telling me. So he didn't like me. I didn't like him is the reality. Um, but I was not going to allow that to interfere with me doing my job, which was to establish the truth, to put the truth down on paper, on um, tape, and take that to court. You know, you have to not be biased in what you're saying and what you're asking. You can't show any um, true feelings for what you feel about that person you're dealing with. You have to just be straight down the line and just establish the truth. So I was very much, I think the determination to um, take this man to court and um, find him guilty of what we believed he had done very much gives you that drive to be straight down the middle and make sure that nobody can ever accuse you of anything that's going to put um, you know, that case in jeopardy. So you always have that in your mind. Mm. 
Mm. And you, sp- you know, I've heard you speak about it a couple of times now, but when you, you found out, when you finally did get that guilty verdict, I mean, it was years, you know, all this extra hours and fighting. And I know even mm. his wife it wasn't, you know, wasn't playing ball with you. You were just, you'd go through gut instinct, all three of you, through more than anything else. So that when you got that verdict, it, the impact that it had on you was was really, really incredible. It it was the impact was phenomenal for 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 a number of reasons not just because we'd spent three years getting him there um, and getting the guilty at court um, but I'd had my own similar um, um, issues in my home life uh, that I was dealing with within the case um, and to to have put those to one side while I dealt with this case, it was just like the culmination of years of a number of things, you know, years of the case, years of a a dysfunctional relationship, years of keeping everything inside and being totally professional. (laughs) And then that guilty um, verdict, that, that that was it, that was the floodgates. You know, that was, I think that was just those years of holding everything in just opened and and out they came. Um, so it was a, it, it was probably one of the most impactive moments of my life, without a doubt. Um, but you know, being within the police, you have you have moments that will always live with you. There are there are many different things that I can think of now, um, you know, that that impact and remain with you throughout your policing career. But that I think was probably the the. The, the pinnacle, mm. the, one of the biggest ones, yeah. But on that note, so to work, um, going back to what we were saying earlier with your work as a family liaison officer, you know, I mm. can't, um, again, I can't, I as a journalist, you know, we go and knock at doors when there's something terrible happened. And I that's just, but for you to be so involved and so in that situation with Sean O'Callaghan, you know, you have got now a very close relationship with Elaine, her mum, but how do you, how do you start off a relationship with that when you're going into someone's home at the very worst time of their of their life? It is um, it, it is an in, incredibly um, difficult job being a family liaison officer, and the, the, it's it's certain certain breed of person that goes in to do it. I'll be honest. Um, sometimes you you have it's funny you have this almost um, invisible envelope that you put over yourself when you go um, and deal with families Um, you have to because um, if you don't you would you would just break down every time you went to see a family Um, there are different you know I've I've done many different family liaison jobs over the years and um, you you, you're building up enough of a, a rapport with those people so that you can establish why the person that you're there in aid of, you know, the person who has died, so that you can establish why and how they have died. That That is what your aim is to do. Um, some of those people, you'll go in, you'll do your job and you'll go. Some of those people, you go in, you do the job and they stay with you. Um, I think I've, I've got Elaine and I've got one other family that um, I'm still in touch with. Um, so you you do put a protective barrier on. Sometimes people get through it, and um, Elaine O'Callaghan was one of them, and my my other family um, were one of them, and they're the ones that remain with you. Um, but you, yeah, you you learn to you learn to protect yourself. You, yeah, I mean, as a police officer, you have to protect yourself. You have to protect yourself from life sometimes. Um, so you become very good at putting your invisible cloak on mm. when you go to work. I can imagine you're very inspired by some of the people as well. It sort of works both ways as horrified, but also inspired as well, the way people deal with such horrendous situations. Yes, yes. And, um, you know, Elena Callahan, she was she was always just the most incredible woman. You, you know, you, you say the word brave, and brave can have many different meanings um, in many different situations. You know, you you think of people fighting for their lives in the you know, in wars and things. You know, you've got bravery there. But then, how Elaine dealt with um, 
you know, the murder of her daughter. She was she was incredible and she is incredible. Um, and I was always completely in awe of her, I'll be honest. Um, so, yes, you, you learn a lot about human beings. In terms of the next, your your next chapter, when we come back to interview for the second time, is there, what would, else would you like to do, Maddie? Um, so next chapter. So if I had my way, I would surround myself with animals um, and um, take in as many dogs in their latter years so I could give them the best final months and years of their lives as possible um, or any other animal. You know, I would just surround myself with, self with animals because um, they're so uncomplicated, really. They're so... Um, you know, the, yeah, they're so much, they're so much nicer than human beings. Um, not all human beings, but they're so much nicer in general than human beings. So if, if I could, if I had the money, that is what I would do. Sadly, I have my three dogs that I have at the moment. So um, I may manage to, you know, squeeze it up to four at some point when I retire. But uh, um, another thing I had thought about was becoming a celebrant which is almost at the opposite end of the spectrum to, you know, surrounding myself with animals would be surrounding myself with people. Um, but at the, you know, the happiest times of their lives um, through marriage um, and, um, you know, cementing of relationships, um, you know, um, that sort of thing. But then also at the worst times of their lives when, you know, you're, you're going through cremation and burials and, and funerals and committals and things. Um, but it's that, again dealing with people um which i do ultimately really enjoy um at the best and worst times of their lives um that's what i do best i think and and um so that's certainly an idea that i'm toying with at the moment mm, i can imagine you'd be very good at it my dear something tells me something tells me i'm going to ask everyone to do this in i'm going to ask you to give your acknowledgments so is there anyone who you uh, would say thanks to all everything that you have achieved. Anyone in particular who stands out to you, or more than one person? <laughs> um, so, having having rebelled at the age of thirteen, um, I've been quite um, individual in everything I do, and everything I do, I've just kind of got on with it and done it. Um, it's always been something I've driven myself to do, um, you know, whether that's good or bad. And there's lots of bad things along the way. But um, whether that's good or bad, I think there are probably um, constants in my life would be my mother has uh, is an amazing woman. She's an incredibly strong woman. Um, and she's always been there, even at my lowest, she, um, although she didn't know it, none of them ever knew about my lowest points, but you've always, you know, she's always been there. My mum has always been there and she's always helped. If, I, if I've if i ever asked for help, my mother has given me it. Um, and I think my children, um, my children are the light of my life um, and they have always been there whether they've known it or not, right from when, you know, year dot onwards, they have been an inspiration to me and they've been a reason to me. Um, and my dogs from all the, all my, all my dogs' names begin with M. So from the first M to the M's I have now, all my dogs um, are my, my solace. So th those are the people I would say, the people and the animals that are the major things in my life. I have to ask you then, Maddie, have you ever called a dog Midge uh, after Midgeur, who you picked up in the taxi? <laughs> do you know, I do have a Midge. Ah, I thought you might. <laughs> but it wasn't, it wasn't after Midgeur. Ah. I <laughs> a different Midge. Okay, so now I am really going to let you go. But before I do, can I just ask this last question? So if somebody's listening to this and they are thinking it, it might not be about uh, being in the police, but it absolutely might be now, or they might be thinking about anything, a different, a, a new chapter, a next chapter in their life. What would you say to them as somebody who's tried so many different things and then you've obviously found what you were meant to find? Um, <laughs> what would you say to them? What would be your, your biggest advice? So my my advice to anybody who wanted to change direction. So I changed direction, obviously, as like you say, I've changed direction many times in my life. And I think I've dabbled in things and thought, oh, I'll give that a go. I'll give that a go. 
the, joining the police was a, a, the biggest change in my life, without a doubt. It affected many people as well as myself, um, you know, committing to that change. Um, I was in a, a very lucky position that um, my husband at the time was in the RAF and I was able to, to make that change to follow that career. Um, he supported me and he was there to help out um, for me to make that change, um, which meant it was much easier than it might have been otherwise. Um, but it was certainly one of the best decisions I've ever made. I, I love I love being in the police um, and I've loved my time up to now. Don't get me wrong, it's like any career, you always get good and bad bits in it. But, you know, it, it was just a great, great decision that I made and I'm really, really glad I made it. Um, if people are in a position where they are toying with an idea, if it's something they really want to do and they are able to do it, you know, go and do it. Life's too short. Life is definitely too short. And I think at, at, at the moment, with the, the year we've had in 2020, I think um, a lot of us are a lot more aware of that, um, that life is too short. Um, we've seen people who have lost people unexpectedly. Um, so live life. If you've got something you want to do, you want to try, try it. Um, don't wait because you know, tomorrow might not be there. Um, go and do it. Give it a go. Um, you know, which is why I'm sure that at some point I will give Celebrancy um, a go uh, just to see how I get on. Um, and hopefully it'll be as successful as my policing career has been. Um, so, yes, absolutely. If, if you are able, if you're in a position to do so, go and do it. Life is too short celebrate life and make the most of it. Maddie Hannah, thank you so much for being such an amazing first guest. <laughs> no problem. I hope you can get some sense out of this <laughs> and I hope some of it was useful for you. So there you go. I hope you enjoyed listening to Maddie as much as I did speaking with her. The lesson I learned from this was why not give something a go? Maddie did this so many times and it led her to exactly where she is meant to be and what a life she is living. It's not easy though, is it? It's scary, it's scary for me and I'm sure it might be scary for you too. But listen, you've got me and Maddie, we're behind you, we're in this together. Look, you can get in touch at elliebarkerwrites.com. I'd love to hear what you're up to and I'll also keep you up to date with my next chapter. That is if you'd like, of course. Now, I know everyone says this, but if you don't mind rating and reviewing this episode, that would be great. But in the meantime, good luck, go on, one first little step. You can do it. Speak soon.